Chapter three is therapeutic communications. As a paramedic, you must use every strategy to make sure that you understand the patient and that they understand you. We have to be able to communicate with our patients. Our communication includes verbal and nonverbal communication, and we do need to pay attention to both of those. And you must be able to interrogate scene and patient findings, integrate patient, the scene patient findings with your knowledge to form a field impression or your field diagnosis. So the basic communication model. So communication consists of a sender. The sender encodes a message in a form that is easily understood. So the sender thinks about what he wants to say and then says his message. A receiver receives and decodes or interprets the message, the meaning, thinks about what was said, what is asked, and then responds, which is the feedback, the receiver's response. Several reasons that can cause a failure of communication. You may have prejudice, lack of empathy, especially by the paramedic towards the patient. Maybe lack of privacy. Patient, if we're asking sensitive questions in front of other people, the patient may not want to answer that question. External distractions such as traffic noise, bystanders, crowds, etc., or internal distractions such as distractive thoughts, weakness, etc. Building trust and rapport. Very important that we build that rapport with our patients. We need to make a good first impression. That includes looking neat, looking professional as we approach. Make sure that we are asking the right questions. Organize your thoughts. Make sure that we are asking appropriate questions. When we respond to the patients, we do so empathetically. Use appropriate voice, body language, gestures, and make eye contact with your patients as well. Other ways we can build that rapport is just trying to make our patients more comfortable. Try to alleviate the pain that they're in or the discomfort. Something as simple as giving them a pillow and covering them with a blanket or adjusting the thermostat in the back of your truck can go a long way of making the patient feel like we care about them and we're there to help them. Key points to remember on building trust and rapport. Introduce yourself. Again, first words out of our mouth should be, hi, my name is Mason. I'm a paramedic. Use the patient's name and address him or her appropriately. Whether that's first name or last name is going to be dependent on the patient. Typically, elderly patients, we typically want to address them by Mr. or Mrs. last name. Younger kids, first name. Modulate your voice, try to remain quiet and calm during our questioning and talking. Use confident but compassionate tone of voice when dealing with the patient's family members as well. Explain what we're going to do to the patient. Explain why we're having to do this treatment to them as well. Again, nonverbal communication is going to be important. Kind, calm facial expressions. Use appropriate style of communication. Stay calm, cool, confident, 
but don't come across as arrogant in front of your patient as well. So general guidelines and communication. Patients generally, generally respond to questions in one of three ways. They're either going to pour out information easily. We ask them a question, they're just going to start pouring out a bunch of information. They may also tell us some things, but conceal other things as well. Or they may be totally resistant on answering questions and purposely trying to hide information from us as well. This can be due to lack of trust, embarrassment, reputation, afraid that they're going to get in trouble if they fully tell us the truth, etc. So again, we have to work around these to try to get the patient to open up to us and to talk to us fully. Again, nonverbal communication includes gestures, mannerisms, postures a person uses to communicate with others. Things that we need to keep in mind, things that make up our nonverbal communication, one of those is distance. In the United States, socially acceptable distance between strangers is four to 12 feet. So initially when we approach, we don't need to immediately just rush up right next to a patient that's conscious and alert. Start that uh, talking to the patient, start that communication a little further back, build that rapport. Now we can get closer to the patient. Comfortable distance is twice the length of the patient's arm. Again, that's typically where we kind of want to start our assessment is that comfortable distance. And as paramedics, as EMTs, we will enter the patient's intimate space, which is one and a half feet or less, or making physical contact with the patient. Again, that we have to in order to perform our jobs. Again, initially, make your introduction, start your assessment from a comfortable distance, and then build that rapport. Now we can get to the patient's intimate space. Relative level, a different message is sent to the patient each time you stand at his eye level, above their eye level, or below their eye level. So again, we need to pay attention to this. Remaining at eye level indicates equality. And this is typically, the vast majority of the time, where we want to be. We want to be at the patient's eye level. If we're hovering over or standing above or over the patient in parts and area of an authority, but it can also intimidate patients as well. And especially if we're dealing with kiddos, we don't want to intimidate a kid. Dropping below the eye level indicates a willingness to let the patient have some control of the situation. It's helpful when your patient is an elderly adult or a child as well. Again, generally, most of the time, though, we want to be at patient's eye level. So again, especially with kiddos, getting down at their eye level is going to help uh, prevent us from coming across as imitating, intimidating to the patient. Our stance. The open stance sends a message that you are confident and at ease. A closed stance sends a message of disinterest, discomfort, disgust, fear, or anger. So again, watch how we're standing. Eye contact should be used as much as possible, should make good eye contact with our patients. And simple appropriate touch can convey compassion and understanding towards your patients as well. Placing your hand on their shoulder, on their knee, on top of their hand. Again, that can go a long way with building that rapport and that trust with that patient. 
Ask some questions. First step is to determine the patient's chief complaint. First thing we need to figure out, well, what's going on with the patient? Why'd you call 911? When we're asking these questions, we don't want to use leading type of questions. We want to use open-ended questions the best that we can and let the patient go from there. During our assessment, when we do ask patient questions, we should ask one question at a time, allow them to answer the question, then we ask our other question. And during our assessment process, the patient should do the majority of the talking. We ask very simple, open-ended questions, let the patient talk. We should limit interruptions to only when absolute necessary as well. Active listening, crucial step, and something that you do need to be good at in order to do an adequate good assessment. Listen closely to what the patient tells you. Try not to develop tunnel vision from the dispatch information. Again, dispatch is going to tell us typically while we're getting called out there too. Don't take that for as golden though. Again, we have to figure out really what's going on by asking our own questions. Dispatch could be wrong or misled. Watch for clues such as facial expressions and body language that may indicate something else is going on with the patient. Provide feedback. Ask for clarification as needed to make sure that we fully understand a precise picture of what's going on. Feedback techniques, silence gives, gives you or patient the time to gather his thoughts and add to what has been said. So don't be afraid of silence. Again, we're going to allow the patient some opportunity to think about the question and to allow them to come up with how they want to answer it. Reflections, check your understanding and to reassure your patient. Echo is messaging back to him using your own words. Again, we're going to kind of repeat the important parts, confirm it to make sure everything, we're all on the same page, that we fully understand what's going on with the patient. Facilitation, encourage the patient to provide more information by using body language, verbal cues such as, uh-huh, I see, go on. Again, we're just encouraging the patient to open up and to continue to talk to us. Empathy, let your body language show that you understand, put yourself in that patient's shoes, understand what they're going through. Clarification, ask your patient to help you understand or eliminate confusion. If they tell you something that you don't fully understand, again, ask them to clarify. Confrontation, and you, if you note inconsistencies in your patient's story, you should politely confront them. You initially stated that your abdominal pain started yesterday. Now you're saying it started a couple hours ago. Do you mind clarifying that for me? Let me know which one it is. Interpretation is interpret your observations. Question your patient about what you believe may be the problem. So based on our assessment, what the patient told us, again, kind of interpret that information. Come up with your field diagnosis. And again, base future questions on that field diagnosis. Explanation, share factual or objective information related to the message. Something like if you did hurt your back or hurt your neck in the crash, it could be serious. We need you to go to the hospital, etc. And summarize briefly, review the interview and your interpretation of the situation. So some common communication errors that we may come across that we need to avoid. Providing false assurances to our patients. 
giving inappropriate advice. The best advice is always going to be, I'm not a physician. When you take you up to the hospital, let a physician take a look at you. Using your authority, using avoidance language, improper distancing, talking to the patients, us talking too much. Again, the patient should do the majority of the talking. Interrupting the patient while they're trying to talk. And using questions like, why did you? Questions which implies that they are to blame for what's going on with them. Even if they are to blame, we don't need to do that in the back of the truck. So observing the patient. Be aware of defense mechanisms. Observing the patient during the interview will give you an indication about the patient's condition. Look at the patient, how they're answering. Do they seem comfortable? Do they seem agitated, upset? If there's any indication that the patient's hostile behavior may threaten your safety or crew safety, then maintain distance in a clear exit path in case things do become violent. Again, we can escape. We need to make sure that we're using appropriate language dealing with the patients. Again, we're going to ask our questions in a form that the patient can understand. We're not going to use medical jargon or big, long, fancy words, talk normally but so that the patient understands this. Barriers communication can include cultural language differences, deafness, speech, impediments, and blindness. And again, it's our job to communicate with our patients. So we need to look for ways to overcome these barriers to make sure that we understand what is going on with our patients. Some special needs and challenges during communication. Difficult interviews can be caused by patients that have a developing cognitive impairment, psychological disorders, language or cultural differences, even differences in age. Y'all all fairly young. I was on an ambulance when I was 19 interviewing a 70-year-old man, he's not going to have much respect for me since I was so young. That's something that we are going to have to overcome. If the patient is reluctant to answer, try to develop rapport by reviewing the reason dispatch gave the call. If the patient is not opening up, again, we can kind of talk to him, try to build some type of rapport. Hi, my name is Mason. Uh, we were dispatched out here for chest pain. Are, are you having chest pain? Again, hopefully kind of get something going from that those type of questions. Again, we tend to ask open-ended questions first. If they're not responsive to open-ended questions, now we may have to try more direct or close-ended questions, those that have a simple yes or no response. Provide positive feedback to any response that the patient provides. If they are reluctant to answer questions, we ask them a question and now they start answering it, we need to give them feedback. Yes, this is what we want. So shaking your head, uh-huh, I see, go on, good. And then try to encourage them to keep talking. And just make sure again that we are speaking in a way that the patient understands the question. If they don't understand the question, ask it a different way. Again, especially for medicals, how they answer our assessment questions is going to dictate care. So their well-being may depend on them fully understanding a question and answering the question correctly. 
Dealing with children, effective communication, pediatric patients depend on their age. How we handle a uh, eight-year-old may be completely different than a two-year-old. For younger children, start by talking to the caregivers, then gradually approach the patient. If that kid's under the age of three or four, we're going to get the vast majority of the information from the parents. So start by talking to mom or dad, the caregiver, get be in the room for a little bit before we actually go and make contact with the kiddo. Kids are very sensitive to body language, so be aware of your body language. And again, get down at the kid's eye level. Do not hover over a small kid. Introduce yourself to the child. Use their name often. That's going to kind of build some rapport and trust with them. They're going to open up some more. Kids are going to be fearful of long periods of silence. So again, avoid those periods. Keep talking to them. Tell the child everything you're doing while we're doing it, uh, why it's important. And again, do not lie to the kid. If this kid, if we have to check a blood sugar on this kid and they ask him, I'm going to get a shot or get stuck, don't lie to him and tell him no. We are going to have to stick him with a needle. Again, they're going to be more open and responsive if we tell them, honestly, yes, we're going to have to stick you with a needle, but it's not going to hurt long. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt very long. Compared to that to if I tell him no, no needles, no shots, and then I have to give him a shot, he's going to feel like I lied to him, and now he's never going to trust me the rest of the time I'm with him. And again, especially with younger, young kiddos, we're going to have to build that rapport, build that trust. It's easier for adults. Adults understand that we're EMS, we're here to help them. We kind of automatically have some type of trust walking in there with adults because we're on the ambulance. Kiddos, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be harder for us to build that trust, build that rapport. Use lots of eye contact, compassionate touch. Ask the child for feedback uh, frequently. Ask them if they understand. Ask them if they have any questions. And just be aware, kids can easily misconstrue what you say. They take everything pretty literally. So just be cautious of what we say in front of them. There are some characteristics based on age. That's page 46 of your book. This should be a review from basic class, but it is there for you to review. For elderly patients, be respectful. Use formal means of address, such as Mr. Mrs. Should speak slowly and clearly when we're talking to them. And we need to be aware that the interview may take longer. Many elders cannot process a lot of information quickly. And they also fatigue easily. So again, very important that we ask one question at a time and allow them plenty of time to think about their answer and to answer the question. Take along their living assists, such as walkers, eyeglasses, anything that can be useful for them that they would feel more comfortable with in the truck or at the hospital. Patients that have sensory impairments, Identify yourself upon first contact. If they are blind or seeing impaired, nonverbal communication is going to be useless. They can't see nonverbal communication. So for blind patients, voice and touch are the only effective tools for providing reassurance and effective communication. Again, for blind patients, make sure that we fully explain what we're doing. 
Ask hearing impaired or deaf patients what their preferred method of communication is. Can they read lips easily? Do they prefer to sign or write? Angry, hostile, or uncooperative patients. Depending on the situation, understand that anger can be a natural part of the grieving process and they just may be venting their frustration. Again, that frustration, anger may be geared towards us. Don't engage with it. Again, allow it to occur. Just don't let it cross that point where we are now threatened. Again, try to accept the feelings without getting defensive or angry in return. And be non-threatening and avoid confrontation. Again, however, if they're blatantly hospital or your safety is jeopardized, leave the scene. Monitor the patient closely. Never leave him alone without adequate assistance. If we do have a suicidal patient or a homicidal patient, we allow them to get into a room by themselves, shut the door. Now they may have access to weapons or they may try to harm themselves or so forth. Again, make sure that we do have a clear exit path and call law enforcement. Don't, be, don't hesitate to call law enforcement. Call them in early. Even if there's a possibility we think we're going to need them, go ahead and call them. We're dealing with sensitive topics. Topics such as sexual activities, death, dying, physical deformities, body functions, and domestic violence may be embarrassing to the patient and may cause them to be reluctant to discuss these type of questions as well. So to earn the patient's trust, try to make him or her feel their problem is not uncommon. Again, if we think we're asking about sexual activity, again, let them know that if they are sexually active in this young kid, they're probably not the only ones that are sexually active at their age or so forth. Again, just be cautious of where we ask these questions. Do so privately. And again, in certain situations, we may even have to separate mom and dad from younger patients as well in order to get them to answer truth, truthfully. Sexual history may be the most embarrassing and uncomfortable topic for both the patient and the provider. Depending on the patient's chief complaint, it may be necessary component of the patient's history though. Again, especially with female patients with childbearing age that are complaining of lower abdominal pain. Remain calm, objective, non-judgmental, regardless of how the patient answers the question. Don't seem shocked shocked by what the patient tells you. Again, if we seem scared or shocked by what they said, we just uh, burned any rapport or trust that they had with us. Silence. Silence can become very uncomfortable for providers. Try to determine why they're becoming silent. It may be due to a medical condition or it may be just the patient's emotional state. Again, Constantly monitor, evaluate, look at the patient's nonverbal clues. Is the patient in pain? Are they scared? Is there something else going on that's preventing them from answering? If the patient was talking and then all of a sudden becomes silent, try to determine why. What happened? What should you do about it? Again, was it a question that we asked? Are they reliving something? Or did the question we asked make them think about a traumatizing experience or the event or whatever the case may be. Overly talkative patients, patient who rambles on can be frustrating to deal with. 
While we're dealing with these patients, we need to briefly give the patient free reign. Again, allow them to talk, give them a little bit of free reign, but focus on important areas. If they're just rambling on and on and on, now we do we may have to interrupt them. Instead of move using open-ended questions, we may need to move to more closed-ended questions to keep us on track. Again, interrupt frequently, try to summarize what they're saying. And again, we have to be patient with them. Don't let them know that we're getting frustrated with them as well. Patients with multiple syndrome. The challenge is discovering the true chief complaint, why they called 911. So what is new today or what has changed that made you call 911 now? <clears throat> Sort through a multitude of information quickly, recognize patterns, uh, that lead to the correct field diagnosis. Again, all of their complaints we're going to think about, try to figure out is there a condition or a field diagnosis that can explain all of them, or we may have to throw some of them out if it doesn't kind of fit. Again, do what we need to do to kind of think about, get a field diagnosis, what we think is actually going on with their patients. Anxious patients, anxiety is a natural reaction to stress. Remember, it's often also one of the earliest signs and symptoms of shock as well, restlessness and agitation. If we notice that the patient does feel anxious or seems anxious, encourage the patient to speak freely about that anxiety. Patients needing reassurance. Being able to reassure patients, again, is a cornerstone of patient care. Do not be overly reassuring or prematurely reassuring of an anxious patient. Again, we don't want to provide false assurances. But whatever we're saying to the patient to reassure them, we need to make sure it's true. The patient may be anxious about something that you are unaware of as well. So again, we can question, man, you, look, you seem pretty anxious. What's going on? What are you feeling? Again, we may be able to figure out what else is going on with the patient. My favorite, intoxicated patients. Typically irrational, disrupt your control of the scene, and rarely allow you to examine them. So again, we all known drunks. Some of us in here that's over the legal age of 21 has probably been drunk in their lives. There's people that are normally very uh, calm, laid back until they start drinking, and then they get very anxious, agitated, whatnot. Uh, I'm not that way. I, I get pretty awesome when I'm drunk. But again, there's people that may be that way. What are you looking at, Daisy? So make sure that the environment is safe for us when we get there. Avoid challenging body language and remarks. Again, they can easily misinterpret what we're saying as a threat or we want to fight them. And intoxication, remember, can mask or mimic signs and symptoms of injury or illness. So drunks get sick and injured too. Just because they're drunk doesn't mean they didn't fall and crack their head open. Or drunks are more prone to like diabetic emergencies because of the malnutrition as well. So again, patients can be drunk and sick. And when we're dealing with drunks, again, there's other conditions that may mimic intoxication. So we need to try to roll those out as well. Crying patients, my least favorite. Crying is a form of venting. It's an important clue to patients' emotions. 
patients that are crying, again, they're crying for a reason. Just accept that as a natural release and do not try to suppress it. Don't get onto them. Tell them they need to stop that crying, grow up, man up. If it's a guy, I probably would still say that to a man. You need to man up. But you shouldn't. Depressed patients, biggest thing with depressed patients is suicidal ideations and thoughts. Ask the patient about those suicidal thoughts, ideations. Are you having thoughts about harming yourself? If so, did you have a plan? Did you have the means to do it? What stopped you from doing it? All those routine questions. And again, with depressed or extremely suicidal patients, don't leave them alone. Don't give them that opportunity to actually act on those thoughts. Confusing behaviors or histories. You may encounter patients whose story can't follow. They're just kind of bouncing around all over the place. We have no idea kind of the timeline of what's going on with it. These type of patients cannot come up with it. Their problems cannot be diagnosed in the field. If they're bouncing all over the place, not giving us a, I mean, a, an account of what's going on, we're going to have no idea how to treat them best. Patient's behavior seems distant, aloof, inappropriate, or even bizarre. Then we may need to start thinking about suspected mental illness. Again, we do need to make sure check all of our uh, bases just to ensure that it is not an acute medical condition that's causing their erratic behavior, though, as well. Delirium and dementia are disorders that relate to cognitive function. There is, remember, a difference between delirium and dementia. Delirium is called commonly acutely ill or intoxicated patients, and they are often reversible. So delirium is an acute change in mental capacity or cognition and often is caused by a reversible cause. Low blood sugar, alcohol intoxication, drug overdoses, things along those lines. Dementia, on the other hand, is a chronic condition that does not have a reversible cause. Typically found in elderly patients, slow progressing, and again, it is permanent. For dealing with patients suffering from delirium or dementia, oftentimes they're not going to be able to give us a clear history of, about past history, what's going on with them, and so forth. So with these patients, again, we're going to have to rely on others, caregivers, family members, bystanders that know them. And again, anytime we're dealing with delirium, dementia, altered mental status, we need to compare what is normal for the patient. Patient has a history of dementia. They're very confused, okay? Is this normal for the patient? Is this patient acting normal? Patients with limited intelligence, you can normally obtain an adequate history from a patient with limited intelligence. Most of the time, these patients can still tell us about their medical history. We can still ask them what's going on today, where they're hurting at, are they having a hard time breathing, and so forth. Don't assume that the patients will not be able to provide adequate information concerning their medical status. Again, we're going to start our assessment talking to the patient first. Get what we can from that patient, and then if we need clarification, we can always go back and ask family members or caregivers. By talking to them, try to evaluate the patient's educational level, mental abilities. If you suspect severe, severe mental retardation, obtain the history from family or friends, or any cases where we can't get that information from the patient themselves. Ask others. 
talking with family or friends, often you encounter a patient who cannot give you useful information or the full story. So find a third party who can help explain patient's history, reason why the ambulance was requested. But just be aware of confidentiality and consent issues, HIPAA and so forth when we're dealing with these patients as well. Communications also plays a role when we transfer care to another healthcare provider. We may assume care from uh, of that patient from other healthcare providers. If we go to a nursing home to pick up a patient, there's going to be a nurse on scene that is going to hand over care to us. Before we receive care from another healthcare provider, they should give us a report. Now, depending on the nursing home, this is kind of iffy, but they should give us a report before we take over that patient care. Make sure that we are listening to that report. Ask questions if we need to, for clarification. Integrate the information that they give you into the questions you ask the patient ourselves. If the patient's still conscious, even though we've gotten a report, we're still going to talk to our patients. We're still going to do an assessment, ask questions of our patients as well. And then when we drop off our patients at the receiving facility, we also need to make sure that we're giving a thorough verbal report to that uh, hospital staff as well. Summary for chapter three, quickly and effective gather information about the patient. Remember body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, how you position yourself to the patient is gonna go a long way to either build that rapport or to break that rapport. And show compassion, empathy, along with demonstrating expertise that is necessary to care for the patients. All right, any questions? <laughs>